Welcome to the Inquiring Mind Podcast with me, Stanley Goldberg. Today, I'll be speaking with Wendy Lauer, who's an American historian and a widely published author on the Holocaust and World War II. Since 2012, she holds the John K. Roth Chair at Claremont McKenna College in Claremont, California. And in 2014, she was named the director of the McGrublin Center for Human Rights at Claremont. As of 2016, she serves as the interim director of the Jack Joseph and Morton Mendel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. She's the author of the National Book Award winner Hitler's Furies and most recently of The Ravine. We discussed the role of collaborators, uniqueness of Ukraine to the Nazis, why it seems so easy to kill other fellow human beings, and numerous other topics. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to the Inquiring Mind podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your support is greatly appreciated. And now, without further delay, I bring you Wendy Lauer. Wendy Lauer, welcome to the Inquiring Mind podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to be uh, here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, it's going to be great to discuss your new book that I have right here, The Ravine. And so before we get started, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do and then how you came to write this book? Oh, okay. Well, I'm an historian. Um, my focus is the Holocaust. I uh, completed my PhD in history and I um, always have been writing and, and researching on um, the history of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, um, specifically in, as it occurred in Eastern Europe uh, since the early 1990s, basically since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and you know, as, for anyone who's interested in my deeper biography, I could just mention I went to Hamilton College as an undergraduate also in history and, and German language and studied abroad in Vienna. And that really gave me that kind of orientation to Europe and European history. Um, and then I went to graduate school in Washington DC at American University and studied with um, an historian who had written uh, at the time when I first started graduate school, a very important biography of Himmler. Um, and that was also very influential in my um, intellectual development. And that's what actually took me to Ukraine in the summer of 1992. Um, because my that book um, situated Himmler and Hitler and the other Nazi elites in Ukraine during the Second World War. So that's why I started to move in that, that direction. Um, and from there, I um, worked at the Holocaust Museum uh, for many years, which was, uh, those were formative years, um, not only in this, in the history of that institution, but also in my own thinking about history as something that should reach the public um, and can be um, portrayed and, and reconstructed in all these different ways as museums do um, differently than um, traditional empirical studies of history. Um, and I taught in the University of Maryland system at Towson State. Um, I moved to Germany for five years and wrote a book there called Hitler's Furies. And then I came back to the United States in 2012 and took up the John K. Roth professorship at Claremont McKenna College. Uh, and was also named the director of the Magrublian Center for Human Rights at the, at the college. And I've been um, out here in California since then. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my story thus far. And how do you like uh, being a professor? 
I love it. Um, I had worked, I went back to the Mandel Center, the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies, which is the research kind of arm of the museum in DC. Um, and I took on that directorship. I was acting director there for a few years and um, I love the institution. I love everything they do there um, and their mission, but I realized that I preferred to be in the classroom and I preferred to be around young people with formative minds and, and futures ahead of them. And um, that kind of every year, uh, every academic year that students come in, it's just this rejuvenating kind of experience. So I decided to return to California. Great. And obviously I mentioned your new book, uh, The Ravine, and can you explain why you wrote the book, what inspired you to write it, and um, yeah, what that process was like? Sure. Um, this book really started with the photograph, which is at the center of the book. Uh, a lot of the work that I've done, um, starting really with my dissertation on the Holocaust in Ukraine, and then Hitler's Furies, which is about, about women, um, German women and their reactions to the Holocaust. Um, and then another book I wrote on a diary. A lot of it has been driven by the discovery of sources. Uh, I find it, you know, at first intriguing when I come across something that seems anomalous or rare or shocking or just kind of grabs me. Um, and then I kind of want to follow up on it and to see just how much can be unpacked and discovered. And, and that process of discovery uh, is really about what the book, The Ravine is, is about discovery behind this one singular photograph. Um, and this has been kind of my pattern in, in my other work as well, kind of finding a documentation file on women as per who were perpetrators or finding a diary um, and committing to that source. So The Ravine began with this photograph that was brought to my attention in 2009. Uh, I was at the museum in the archives in DC. Actually, I hadn't, I wasn't, as I mentioned, I was living in Germany. So it's um, kind of extraordinary that I had flown back and happened to be in the archives on that August day working on another project. And these journalists came in from Prague um, with this photograph and, 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 and it was part of a series. So they had this one in addition to a few more taken by the same photographer. And my colleague, uh, just came up to me. I was at the microfilm reading uh, in the reading room at the microphone reader, kind of in this little cubicle space. And he said, you know, he just kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think you should take a look at this um, and brought me around the corner and it was on the table. And a group of us were just looking at it and started to just try to um, identify what we were seeing in the picture. And I don't know if you want me to go through that a little bit with your uh, audience, if they so, may not know what the picture is and why <laughs> it's important. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's startling about your, the, the story behind the picture is that oftentimes when we associate, you know, the Holocaust or world war II, we see photos of well dead bodies and that's startling and, you know, sad, obviously, but there was something about the photo in particular where it's uh, a woman and her um, child, correct? Mm -hmm. Standing at the, at the end of a ravine with two uh, Ukrainian, uh, I guess, soldiers or, or people that helped the Nazis and then two Nazi officers. Um, what is it about seeing that photo where it's the last moments of somebody's life that really mm -hmm kind of got you going on this journey? 
Well, it is an action shot, if we could describe it that way, in, in the worst sense of, of that um, characterization. It's the act of murder. It's the final moments of a of Jewish family, um, the child at the center of the image and the mother. And so the loss of that, of the innocence um, of, of the life of a, of a family and these guards at very close range. In fact, one of the Germans almost seems to have his hand kind of placed on the back of the woman. And so it's both the shocking um, last moment with the smoke kind of billowing up um, but also this proximity of the killers to the victims and almost in a kind of intimate kind of um, cluster of individuals there, including the collaborators, the Ukrainian collaborators who are standing kind of shoulder to shoulder, shoulder with the Germans. You can see their caps, their insignia. Um, you can see the, the coats of the militia with the armbands and they're holding these rifles. Um, would find out later on that these were red army coats that had just been quickly repurposed for these militia who were recruited on the spot when the Nazis invaded in the summer of 41. Um, and you can see their faces, their grimaces and their expressions and their posture. Um, you can't see the faces of the victim. They're covered in the, in the smoke. Um, and then you can see in this image, the landscape, the way the photographer who's close at close range as well, maybe 20 feet away, um, so, you know, you realize I'm looking at this up close and this was taken up close. And that means the person who took it openly was participating in this and presumably a collaborator. Um, and it's in broad daylight. You can see the light passing through the trees. You can see the, what I thought was a ravine, but actually is a large pit that had been dug, um, by the victims and also by, um, local Ukrainians and in this case, um, Ukrainian girls, who were left behind um, in the in the kind of occupation um, society, um, and 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 then the various elements of what we have come to know as the Holocaust by bullets. These are the Jews who were massacred in mass shootings, primarily um, in the former Soviet Union, outside of the gassing centers, outside of the camp system, and it's a significant number. It's it's um, at least uh, two million. Um, of the victims of the Holocaust. And they are very, very difficult to trace um, because they were not registered in the ways that the Germans registered the deportees to the, to the camps. What was it about the Ukrainians in particular that the Nazis found um, so abhorrent maybe that they decided to just kind of plow through Ukraine and kill so many. I think you mentioned in your book that a quarter of the Jewish victims in the in the Holocaust were from Ukraine. So what was it about Ukraine that was so different? Right. So uh, one out of four victims yeah, of the Holocaust reside in what are Ukraine's borders today. Um, so that's the calculation there, but just you're right, that's that's an enormous number. So why and why do we not know that much about those victims and this history? Uh, well, first of all, historically, this was the czar, the Russian czar um, king had set up the Pale of Settlement. Actually, it was the queen. It was um, set up um, in the late 18th century under um, uh, Catherine the Great. And so when Poland was partitioned, they, the, the Russians acquired this part of Poland um, and it was heavily populated by Jews who had been arriving there 
um, like since the 15th century and had been invited by the Polish kings. And so it was, there was a very um, <clears throat> high population uh, uh, of Jews uh, in some cases in these shtetls, these uh, historic communities, uh, the, you know, 30, 50% of those uh, towns were inhabited by Jews. And it's the kind of thing that we might uh, imagine as part of like um, a fiddler on the roof, right? This is the, the <laughs> these are these spaces of, of Jewish life. A lot of it is, uh, you know, uh, very vibrant uh, culturally and religiously, but not necessarily very wealthy. Um, a lot of tailors, you know, a lot of um, uh, peddlers. And, uh, but, but these communities that had been intact, you know, for centuries, um, and um, this particular community is Mirapol is the name of the town. It's about a hundred miles west of Kiev, and um, in its heyday, had at least four thousand Jews, and it was on the map of of Jewish history going back um, to medieval times, um, and in fact was so uh, important in many ways for the Jewish community in this central pale of settlement that ethnographers traveled there um, in the early 20th century to try to uh, capture this history before it disappeared, the vanishing shtetl. So um, a gentleman by the name of Onsky um, brought a photo crew with him as well and started collecting stories. And it resulted in um, a play called The Dybbuk, which is um, staged pretty regularly um, around the world and was made into a movie. And, and that's the setting. Mirapol is actually the town that is the um, setting for that play. So, um, you know, I got into the history of this town. And of course, <laughs> the photographer and the killers here and the Ukrainians, you know, that's that's not what they're thinking about that, you know, that wonderful history that's that's being destroyed. Um, but for the Nazis, you know, this was uh, uh, a target for them because of the high population of Jews. And they were so determined in their genocidal campaign to destroy every, as Hitler said, um, every Jewish family in, on the continent of Europe. He didn't want them to um, return and avenge the deaths of their relatives. So that kind of um, root and branch genocide. Um, was really targeted in these locations where there were these high populations of Jews. So that's why Ukraine and Poland, parts of Lithuania, um, really uh, experienced this onslaught in a very um, overwhelming and, and really rapid way as of the summer of 41. Yeah, what's what's startling, again, in your book, you give a kind of a brief overview of the history of the region. So it goes from uh, Tsarist Russia, where these people still can't catch a break really, but you know, there's a pale of settlement and then pogroms, and then you enter uh, the Soviet union. And I think it was best described. Uh, I read a book called bloodlands by Timothy <laughs> Schneider, where um, even before world war II, you have these mass mass murders going on in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Then you have the, ge uh, the genocide, which is a uh, Holodomor, which is the, the famine, in the 1930s. Um, and then all of a sudden you have this new enemy, which are the Nazis. And it's, it, it seems like for 400, okay, maybe 300, 400 years, these, this group of people cannot catch a break. And um, sometimes I, I don't know which one is worse to see the, the famine or the murder because uh, of the by the nazis because it just still seems the same to me 
the intent is to kill these people and to eliminate them. Um, again, these are, there were, yeah. yes, there were uh, absolutely, it's a, historically a place of extreme violence and anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish violence in the history of pogroms, as you mentioned. Um, and they were um, pretty, it was very severe after the First World War during the Bolshevik Revolution. And then the terror famine in, in the early 1930s, which was part of Stalin's uh, attempt to revolutionize the region along this Soviet Bolshevik ideology and to, you know, make the great, um, the five-year plan, the, the economic kind of modernization, that, that imperative that they were pursuing, their five-year plans were part of that. Um, so yeah, by the time the Nazis come, you have, and, and Snyder's terrific about laying out this um, intertwining of Nazism and Stalinism and the assault that this, you know, the, the devastation has created in such a short period of time and within one generation. Um, and it's an escalation um, of, of, of that violence. Um, some have talked about it as a kind of double occupation. Um, the, you know, the Poles refer to it in that way and the Hungarians. Um, but yeah, it, it was just for the local population just um, to survive those, those waves of terror and violence and come out of the Second World War, you know, really no family was intact, no Jewish family, no Ukrainian family um, in these regions, uh, and even, you know, the Germans um, because of the war. So it just was all around just um, absolutely um, catastrophic. Yeah. And the other interesting thing is the role of collab uh, collaborators, uh, especially in Ukraine, because that's where you focus your your research on, but I forget his name. The, there was a famous documentary and it was a big story, I think in the eighties and nineties, uh, it starts with a D. Uh, he, Samyanyuk? yeah. 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 I yeah. went to his trial in Munich. Right. And you talk about yeah. that in the book. Yeah. Um, there's a documentary on it. It's on Netflix. I, I saw uh -huh. it. I, I had no idea about this. Uh, never heard of the story until like a year ago where I watched this. Um, and the guy was clearly lying and covering right. up his crimes and um but he wasn't lying when he he was accused first of being ivan the terrible at treblinka and he that was a misidentification and um so we you know he was um deported to israel and stood trial and was um found guilty and um even i think given the death sentence and they had to revoke that because they realized that they had misidentified him but he was he was Ivan, um, and he was terrible, but they, he was at Sobibor. He was not at Treblinka. So the Germans, when they tried him, um, uh, uh, 2011, I think it was 2010. Um, and he was found guilty as well. They, they determined that in fact, he had been a, a guard at Sobibor, um, and was pushing, basically pushing Jews into gas chambers at Sobibor. And what is the role? Why is, why was it so pervasive for there to be collaborators in Ukraine? Uh, and, and it seems like there's, there was a lot of them like willing to, you know, shoot their own people in some ways. Hmm. This is such a complex, complicated question, but it really is at the heart of this image. This is an image that shows in the most stark way, collaboration and resistance, the collaboration of these killers, Germans and Ukrainians here who don't share the same language and are just carrying out this act together. Um, and it's just understood. It's just the, the power of this uh, and pervasiveness of this anti-Semitism in Europe. Um, the Germans needed 
support. They needed their, they needed men on the ground. They were fighting a war. Um, they had real kind of like practical needs, manpower needs, and um, quickly assembled any able-bodied men who remained behind because many of the men were evacuated with the Red Army, including, including Jewish men who ended up being among the, the sole survivors because they evacuated and came back and found their communities destroyed. Um, but of the, of the Ukrainians who remained, um, they were kind of recruited on the spot. Many of them volunteered. They saw opportunities for advancement. They were coming, coming out of a system. You just mentioned the Holodomor and the struggles of the Stalinist revolution. Um, there was a lot of animus there because of what happened during the Holodomor, a lot of anti-Soviet sentiment, the rise of Ukrainian nationalism, the dream that Ukrainians had to form their own nation independently, their own, their autonomy, um, hoping that they could align with the Germans to achieve that and break free of the kind of Soviet yoke of Moscow. And, um, and so they had in some instances that agenda, but um, mostly these Ukrainian militia weren't as um, kind of, they wanted Ukraine for Ukrainians, um, but they weren't, you know, in some politically active movement. They were more opportunistic. They um, wanted um, material betterment. They wanted houses. They wanted clothes. Um, they wanted a paycheck. They wanted the boots, the uniforms that were being distributed. They wanted the training, the military training. They wanted the weapons. Um, so, you know, the Germans were very, um, successful at recruiting these individuals. Um, some of them were really kind of like marginal elements and suddenly had that opportunity. Um, there were some na nationalists kind of among them, but the Germans, uh, weeded a lot of them out pretty, pretty early on. They didn't want that to become a political movement. Um, but yeah, the, the ratio is, you know, in these small towns, the Germans could not be present. There was not like kind of German Gestapo headquarters in every little town like this. They had to rely on the locals and they had basically, you know, maybe one German gendarme commander and a, and a platoon of um, like 18 to 25 Ukrainians um, or ethnic Germans from Ukraine who would make up the kind of, you know, the um, patrol unit. So they were then um, mobilized and deployed for these so-called killing actions. They had, they, you know, they had to do a lot of the dirty work as the Germans would call it. You know, they, um, they, when the German Einsatzgruppen and mobile killing units were carrying out these mass shootings um, in the summer and fall of 41, uh, their, their boss Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, the um, uh, Hitler's right-hand man for the entire implementation of the Holocaust, I mentioned him before, um, you know, he was concerned about his men and their nerves and, you know, just how, difficult it was for them to, to carry out these massacres. And so they increasingly relied on non-Germans to do, do this kind of dirty work and Jews themselves as under commando. Yeah. And, and I think that's evident again, in for example, Christopher Browning's book, uh, Ordinary Men, where you have a regular people carrying out, and it, 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 they really were regular people that carried out these horrible crimes. And there were react, they did have certain reactions. They, they, there were people that threw up while, while doing it and they did find it sickening, but it, in some almost perverse way, they kept doing it because it would be weak of them not to do it. Um, which is a very interesting psychological study of people. Uh, but what, what, what's another thing that's interesting is the fact that, uh, the reason I suspect most people don't know about this side of the war, they know about the obvious, the Holocaust and, 
the the war on different fronts and all that uh, is because whenever a researcher, you mentioned this in the book, tries to bring it up or research these topics further, they get either shut down, they get threatened in Eastern Europe. Um, what is the reasoning behind doing something like that? Why would one continue to pursue it or why would one be threatened? Uh, both, I think. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, um, I mean, first of all, it's, you know, a, a large portion, right? So we established that it's uh, an, an enormous number of individuals who were murdered. So that in and of itself, that fact demands our attention and our inquiry and, and, and historical writing and research um, and memorialization and education. So, I mean, if we can't um, take genocide seriously, if we can't take these events that demonstrate what we're capable of, um, and it's, you know, it's almost existential, right? I mean, if you ignore this, um, um, and frankly, um, a lot of other historical episodes of, of this magnitude as far as, you know, genocide um, uh, uh, and mass human rights violations, like the history of slavery or that, you know, what's going, what, you know, has been suppressed in many ways in our, and, and taboo in our own history here in America of the um, annihilation of the Native Americans. So, you know, these um, are really important um historical uh, episode is too mild a word, you know, tragedies and catastrophes. And um, I, you know, I'm of the view that this, this is important to study. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and, and shouldn't be suppressed. So that's, you know, why I go about it, why we have institutions that support it and um, a memorial culture and, and so forth. Um, that's reason enough for me to argue that it has to be studied, um, but it is difficult. It's difficult because it, it, it brings us, um, it, 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 it's affective, it, it generates these kinds of emotional reactions, especially if you're the descendant or you're somehow personally connected to this history, which I am not. I have the privilege to do it from kind of a distance. Um, but, um, you know, these, these are difficult subjects and they bring us a sense of kind of human shame when we study this. Um, if we uh, start to depoliticize and just realize that this is really kind of a universal problem, it has very specific history and specific contexts, but it's really about us. And, um, you know, the, the situation in right now in Poland and in Hungary, where by this is this kind of work, you know, shames the nation and um, should not be front and center because of the kind of discomfort it, it brings or um, this sense of betrayal that it, it um, kind of evokes in that political culture is just it's, um, you know, uh, an attempt to whitewash this and not deal with our responsibility for it um, as humans, not as Poles, not as Ukrainians, not as Hungarians. But, you know, the problem is that it's too kind of ethnicized, it's too politicized instead of pulling back and realizing, you know, to our peril, if we don't really just accept that this is what we're capable of doing. And, and, you know, until you, you pull back like that and understand it as a human condition, you know, how are you going to be empathetic towards the Rohingya? How are you going to really try to um, mobilize a intervention or prevention program for genocides that are occurring around the world today if, if you can't appreciate it as this um, human condition that we all share responsibility for? Yeah, I think the first step in uh, 
fixing a problem is acknowledging that there was one or is one, right? And it seems to me like Germany did a pretty decent job at it where, I mean, maybe they had no choice because it was so blatant, but uh, these other countries that you just mentioned, maybe Poland, Ukraine, uh, they saw themselves more as victims in this whole thing, which again, rightfully so. Occupied. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, yeah, they were occupied. So they don't want to, they don't want to talk about the, the, some of the bad things that happened in the war because they were like, we dealt with enough bad, bad stuff in our history. So we don't want to mention this. It's almost the same thing as when the Japanese don't teach uh, the, 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 you know, the genocide of uh, the Chinese during world war two in their history books, because they were bad enough. Now you don't want to mention all the other stuff. So I'm not saying I, I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying there is a there's that rationale too. Um, yeah. One, the, the, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that too because it's it's easy now, and this is where I, I think that there are those um, there's that pushback in the part of the Poles and the Hungarians and other or the Lithuanians, um, and the and the way the word collaboration is is just such a um, a trigger for all of this. Um, yes, they they were they were occupied and experienced a Nazi onslaught and were sent to the concentration camps and were mowed down the Polish intelligentsia from the very beginning of the war. Um, uh, the mentally and physically disabled. I mean, they were all considered untermenschen, kind of inferiors in this racial hierarchy. So, um, you know, it it it's absolutely important to establish that and remember that and that loss of life and the resistance movements within Poland, for instance, that were so important for communicating these crimes and, and trying to intervene. Um, so, and the rescue efforts that individuals um, pursued. So um, yeah, all of this is part of the story, um, but obviously there are a lot of gray areas, a lot of gray zones. Yeah. And what are, Again, one of the painful parts of the book, I mean, personally, my parents come from Ukraine. They 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 both uh, come from the former Soviet Union. So um, this- Where did they come from in Ukraine? Uh, both from Kiev. Oh, so okay. yeah, this uh, this book was uh, hit close to home, even though I was born here. Uh, so one of the painful parts was when you described going to Ukraine in, I think it was 2014, correct? Mm-hmm. And- you go to Mirapol and you you see the town and what's happened to the town since. And it's been probably, um, sorry, my math is going to be off here, 60, 70 years since the end of the war. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the, the city is still dealing with the repercussions of the war. And it just, you're, you paint a very powerful picture of poverty and, and, and Mm -hmm, distress. mm -hmm. Uh, What was that experience like when you went to Ukraine? Mm. Uh, The first time I went was the summer of 92 um, in the wake of the collapse of Soviet Union. So Ukraine got its independence in 91 August. And it was just kind of the the, the wild West, um, just a complete breakdown. Um, No real, uh, police forces in place, uh, rolling blackouts, hyperinflation, um, just the collapse of a system that was already just on its last leg and an an economic kind of implosion. And, um, but also a moment of, for Ukrainians, culturally very exciting Um, in Jatomer where I was and Kiev, just 
the return of the national colors and of dress and celebration and all the hope and promise. And there were Ukrainians coming to Washington. I was working with them in the Library of Congress and there were groups coming, studying the American constitution. I mean, they were writing their constitution and trying to figure out what model to follow and comparing to different countries of German constitution, just fascinating. So just building something from the ground up and young people, entrepreneurs starting businesses and, you know, and a lot of that was really, um, uh, you know, that promise started to kind of wither because of corruption and reimposition of kinds of um, bureaucracies and graft and, you know, and just the, the Ukrainian-Russian relationship and the Russians continuing to want it to be present and influential and to also keep their grip on Ukraine's resources. Um, and this continues to this day, I mean, with, with Putin and the war. Um, so it's just a very, um, uh, you know, interesting experience of historical moment there. Um, and I went back almost, you know, every year, every other year. Um, so on a regular basis and developed relationships with a, a family and, and there and friends and um, doing work there and, and traveling around the country more, Western Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine and working with organizations there trying to get Holocaust studies going, um, including in Kiev <clears throat> with colleagues there. Um, but absolutely, especially going into these smaller towns, the contrast, the extreme poverty, um, kind of like a time capsule, a time warp as far as uh, rural life and the peasantry. But also these, these, as I describe in the book, in a place like Mirapol, standing in that marketplace and those empty spaces, you know, um, and looking at postcards from the 19th century and realizing these were really vibrant um, marketplaces and where uh, there were, you know, shops and, um, you know, interactions of Jews and Ukrainians weekly at, at the bazaar and, you know, just a whole, a whole way of life. And, you know, at that point in the 90s, one couldn't even turn on the lights. I mean, I, we had, we couldn't get things. We were, uh, people were bartering everything. You were exchanging linen, you know, for toner, or, you know, it was just this, this kind of, um, kind of chaos. Um, but I experienced incredible, um, uh, hospitality, hospitality, sorry. And people were coming when they found out I was doing this research, like knocking on the door of my host family, Oh, is a, there's a, we heard about this American and we have a story to tell. And they were just like elderly Ukrainians who had Jewish classmates or um, had wartime experiences of being a slave laborer or Ostarbeiter. And they just, it was as if this lid had come off and they could speak openly and they had a, me, you know, like a captive audience, um, a listener who was then going to bring that story back to Washington and that, so there were people coming, I mean, every night and I, I was, it was exhausting, but, and I couldn't speak the language. So I had to, it was exhausting for my interpreter and I was just taking notes, you know, but the stories that just started to um, emerge, um, that was very exciting. And I tried to incorporate that as much as possible. I, I, I recorded them and I, I um, footnote them and I, and I include them in, in my writing. Um. Again, what's powerful is the fact that people are so willing to tell these stories. Is that also a testament to the fact that uh, Ukrainian society was not open to hearing their voices? And that's why when they finally had somebody that was willing to listen, they poured out the way they did? 
Uh, yeah, I, I think that the sense of feeling of freedom um, and it could, be, could speak without, you know, self-censoring, not the fear of the KGB, you know, knocking on their door or being denounced. Um, now, I'm, I'm sure there were many people who did not, you know, there were many who didn't come knocking on my door um, uh, out of fear. I mean, that's very real there, too. Um, but yes, there, uh, you know, with the, and it started in the late eighties with Glasnost and, and this introduction under Gorbachev of, <clears throat> of freedom and new notions of freedom. Um, but the Soviet, uh, version of the war, the official version, universalization of victims, for instance, suppression of Ukrainian national identity or, or, or demonizing that referring them as, you know, traitors to the homeland, all these kinds of categories of, of, uh, or ways of writing the history um, that suppressed these these stories, the uniqueness of the Holocaust, for instance. Um, and, you know, it, it's very trite, it's very cliche to say this, but I think, you know, eventually the truth does come out. I think um, if it's something this big um, and that many people witnessed it because it was, you know, in broad daylight and whether they were carrying those traumatic memories as far as what they witnessed or carrying the grief of a loss of a friend or seeing a, a Jewish classmate um, with, you know, getting his eyes plucked out. I mean, I just can remember these stories. They just, you know, they, they needed to, um, I guess we'd say in our kind of uh, psycho <laughs> parlance today, psycho babble, you know, they needed to vet, they needed to unload, you know, it was cathartic maybe, you know. Um, and then they were very Western oriented. They were excited about, being a part of Western Europe. And so having a Westerner come in who was going to return to America and why in thinking about an American as someone who could be that messenger and that was going to be a new a new chapter for for the country that would be more westward looking, that that was also, you know, like the driver in the ravine <clears throat> who takes me to Mirapol, who's come out of the war zone. Um, um, uh, I think he was in Kharkiv or 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 um, Donetsk, I can't remember, but who had escaped with his family um, to the region um, in, in 2013 and was, was you know, really um, even physically had been beaten. Like he was still, had was manifesting his wounds. He could not, when I, he was my driver, but he, you know, had, had broken um, uh, ribs and all of that. He was still suffering from that, it was clear. Um, but he was determined to kind of drive me around. And then he brought me to Kiev and he brought me to where the Maidan was and he was introducing me to people. And, you know, so he saw it almost as his own kind of little diplomatic mission. And when we went <clears throat> to be with him in Mirapol to be looking for this site, he saw the photograph and he was also helping me. It was just, I think, you know, um, really remarkable that he was himself living that that history of, of violence today with the war. And then suddenly he was my ally in trying to uncover this historical um, uh, episode that he didn't really have a direct connection to, right? But, you know, wanted wanted to be a part of that. So um, it's a, it's a, I have a, a I, I love Ukraine, actually. I, I have no family history there, but um, ever since the first time I went there, it's just such a beautiful country. And, um, yeah, I just um, feel like it. <laughs> its history is so understudied, and it's, it's been, it was this horrible crucible of Nazism and Stalinism, and suffered such uh, tremendous um, losses of, of life, of, of resources, of, of cultural devastation, everything in the 20th century. Like you said, some 
some countries, some communities just seem to get like hammered historically. And Ukraine is one of these countries. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, I encourage people to visit it. I encourage people to study the history um, and, and also to um, take a closer look today at what's going on there as far as um, uh, Putin's um, uh, occupation and, and war um, in Crimea and on the eastern border. Yeah. Um, a personal question, because I, I, whenever I read books about the Holocaust or, you know, any of these situations, um, one of the really good books uh, that I read was Richard Rhodes, who's a, uh, wrote a book called Masters of Death. I think it's his lesser known work. He wrote, he wrote a bunch of books about, you know, the atomic bomb and nuclear energy and stuff like that. Won a Pulitzer Prize for it, but he wrote this book and there he chronicles Bobby Yar in a chapter and then other uh, lesser known uh, massacres in Ukraine. What always boggles my mind is how seemingly easy it was for people to kill another human being. And maybe it's because they, they somehow managed to dehumanize them by calling them, you know, vermin or cockroaches or whatever. Mm -hmm. But how do you see these Nazi well, Nazis and the collaborators? How, can you begin to understand them in some way? Or is it just human nature that you can kind of learn to dehumanize somebody and then kill them almost easily? You know, so that's that's always mind boggling to me. Why is it so easy to kill another human being in, in, in these situations? Or maybe it seems easy. I don't know. Yeah, no, these are the most vexing questions and they really are what drives this inquiry. And, you know, the fact that we have so many really unresolved, some of these unresolved issues in the history of mass violence and genocide um, uh, from the perpetrator side and also kind of from the victim side. And um, it's, it's, it's really the, 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 that's the, what drives this inquiry because it is so, these are questions that are big questions and they kind of remain open-ended. We don't, there are no simple answers. Um, we only can identify kind of pieces and, and you've mentioned a couple of them um, because this continues, right? And in all these different ways, um, ideology is absolutely important that we as human beings have this amazing capacity cognitively and intellectually, the, the brain, right? That we are, the, that many of these Einsatz group and killers, you know, were, uh, had PhDs, you know, um, and that Germany was the most cultured country and had um, Germans, nationals, Jewish Germans, German nationals. They had been receiving, you know, racking up Nobel <laughs> prizes. And, you know, so that was really um, dumbfounded a lot of people like how and, and Ukrainians and, and Jews and the Germans came in, oh, they're civilized, you know, they're civilized. They're not going to carry out these kinds of, they're not going to act like Stalin's henchmen because they're Germans, you know? Um, so we come to realize that, you know, um, being cultured, being educated is not um, going to safeguard us against this kind of ability to commit this violence. They can, they can coexist. So what's going on? Well, psychologists have theories about splitting and, you know, what, what we, you know, and denial and repression and all kinds of 
tricks that we we play in our minds in order to um, uh, carry out these, you know, follow through on these acts and then turn around and go home and and hug your wife, you know. So it's it, that's a, a realm of, of really interesting research that has come out of genocide studies and involved um, psychologists and social psychologists. And, um, you know, part of the book is about these big questions and, and how different scientists or researchers have tried to answer them. Um, uh, through these different disciplinary approaches or by looking at um, anti-Semitism as a phenomenon or, or gender. Um, and so that's part of the uh, uh, intellectual side of this um, pursuit. But yeah, you're asking really fundamental human questions um, or philosophical ones as well. Um, I, yeah, I don't have any, any easy answers, but I think trying to identify these pieces um, in Richard Rhodes's book, as you mentioned, Tim Snyder, Raul Hilberg, uh, you know, the list, James Waller, these are some really important scholars working on these subjects. Um, it helps us see uh, or understand this problem a little bit better, yet another facet of it. Um, but yeah, the bottom line is that we can do this and we know we can do this. Um, and it's really like, existential or even suicidal. Other species don't do this. They don't engage in systematic, you know, um, intellectually sophisticated, um, uh, mechanically sophisticated, you know, in terms of the weaponry and organization and the trains, you know, and the chemicals, you know. So we, we put our, our, our efforts, our, our most, uh, you know, we apply our civilization, our intelligence to this, to this kind of activity is, um, is really uh, mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, what is the future for genocide? Well, we see a lot of irrationality today here in America. So our our capacity to be irrational is like right. It's endless. Day, endless. Every day, aren't we shaking our heads? Right. So. You know. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that it took this long, for example, to acknowledge the Armenian genocide—that's mm -hmm. uh, one thing uh, that comes to mind for me because we've known about it for a long time and nobody had the, I guess, the courage to, to stand up and just acknowledge the fact that it happened. But um, what is the future of genocide studies and uh, overall, yeah, or genocide studies in Eastern Europe in your mind? Uh, you, you touched on Ukraine a little bit, how you helped uh, develop their uh, centers in Kiev and other places, but how about in, you know, Poland and places like that? Yeah. Well, um, funny you should ask. I, I was just on a, uh, call yesterday. I, uh, a meeting of the academic committee at the Holocaust museum and I chair that committee. And there was a very really interesting presentation, um, by the European Holocaust research infrastructure. Um, it's a, closed door meeting, so I'm not gonna go into details, but I just wanted to bring your, uh, to the attention of your audiences, a really important organization that's been around now for about 10 years or 11 years, been funded by the EU, and how important it is not only for these national efforts, whether the Germans are continuing to funding their memorials or the Poles are going to continue to keep Pauline, their museums open, um, and their research institutes open and free access and critical inquiry is really important and archival access. Um, but this uh, international kinds of consortiums and networks are absolutely important because these histories, they cross borders. 
And, you know, again, if you, if you, if you think you kind of can own it as your national history, um, as well as distort it, it, it's not, it's historically kind of, you know, inaccurate because the Nazis occupied, uh, you know, dominated Europe with their allies. So it really is a European story. Um, and it, um, it's important for, as you say, with genocide studies as well, to again, pull back and, and look at this phenomenon more broadly. Um, and that program, the European Holocaust Research Infrastructure, the new center in Munich, which I had something to do with as well, that the Germans are funding another a, a research institute that they're trying to build up like a, like exists in the museum in DC, like in Yad Vashem. Um, that kind of investment in that kind of research infrastructure and um, open access and critical inquiry, these are really fundamental for, um, for you know, establishing, furthering this field and bring and opening it up <clears throat> to um, <clears throat> other cases of genocide to, to with the Holocaust, we can, um, and the sources of the Holocaust, we find things and we then can ask questions of other genocides. And similarly, other genocides raise questions that we bring back to Holocaust studies. Um, my first book on Ukraine drew from a lot of work on what is called colonial genocide, what, it, what happened when you, know, when you have an empire that expands on a continent like we had here in the United States, like, like ha has happened in Australia against the Aborigines there. Um, and that kind of displacement as the um, you know, colonization process happens, right? That who's ever there locally, that native population is to be you know, removed, tabula rasa. So the invaders and conquerors can, can set up shop and um, exploit all the resources. So that kind of pattern of genocide, genocidal history, I started to identify in other cases. And then I went back to the Holocaust and I said, hey, the Germans are referring to Ukrainians, the Nazis refer to the Ukrainians in the same ways that the Americans refer to the Native Americans. And in all those derogatory terms, and as and as well using words like the N word, and you know, so I thought, you know, these histories are, you know, they're the genocide heirs. They're aware of these histories, and Hitler's referring to the, you know, what happened in Canada and what happened in in Mexico, you know, so they're talking to one another and informing one another. So you know, it's a historical, it's intellectually, you know, um, narrow and uh, to to not pay attention to that and realize the interconnectedness of this history. Yeah. Uh, maybe to begin wrapping up this conversation, um, I, I asked two questions at the end of every podcast. Uh, the first one is what gives you hope for the future? Um, it could be as general as you want. And the second one is uh, what are five books, if you want more, feel free, uh, on any topic, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend to your students or to my audience? Oh, wow. <clears throat> oh, gosh. Okay. Um, well, what gives me hope is uh, that someone like yourself has, you know, initiated this podcast and picked up my book and read it and is taking an interest in it. There's so much going on in the world. There's so many other things we, uh, you know, our time is so um, uh, stretched, you know, like our attention spans and, and there's, there is a lot of literature out there and a lot going on. And, to, to, to stop and, and pay attention to this history and uh, um, appreciate the importance of it or for institutions to fund these programs, for publishers to publish this work, for people around the world, you know, who help like, you know, together um, write these histories, um, for students to enroll in these courses um, and write papers about it. 
um, and participate in the memorial events. And, you know, that is to watch survivor testimony and try to understand the, the plight of, of the victims and, and their experiences um, on those videos. I mean, the survivors are passing. So to continue to, to want to listen to them and take that time, that gives me hope. And that's, that is continuing. Um, and I'm, I'm really um, enc encouraged by that. Um, and I, and I just um, believe that will continue and, and, and will contribute to that as much as possible. Um, what books? Oh my gosh. Um, I've been reading so many <laughs> different books now because I'm starting another project. Um, and I, kind of pick up books here and there. I, you know, recently read uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, and just thought that was phenomenal and um, was teaching with that. And, um, and that, that really was, um, has, has stayed with me um, and, and changed my kind of view of, of race and racism in America and, and around the world actually historically. So I definitely would recommend that. Um, I love poetry. That's something that um, I find very um, calming. And I also the language and the words and the, uh, you know, the sensory experience I get from reading poetry and the fact that it's so compact and so rich, just the, the language. Um, I, that is one of my, um, one of the things I do to kind of decompress or just kind of put this history aside. And we have a poet here at, at, at Claremont McKenna whose work I've been really enjoying. His name is Henri Cole. And um, although I have like many poets that I like, like to read, um, I haven't uh, picked up a novel um, in a while. Uh, I should, I haven't read one for a while, I have to admit, because uh, I just do a lot of history reading because <laughs> I'm always working on these projects. Uh, so I can't think about uh, some other books that I have at my bedside but that's it right now okay awesome mm -hmm. um well i i really enjoyed your book thank you for writing it um if people uh, what are you working on next if you want to share that feel free um and is there a way people can follow your work mm. going forward um so sure yeah um and there are other books on photography that are cited in my book the ravine that um, I've been continue to carry around with me. Actually, I just wanted to mention, gonna shout out to James Curtis, who sent me some of his earlier work that I, you know, that he was able to obtain on like eBay or something. And I'm just really um, enjoying that on uh, some of the American photography of kind of the Dust Bowl era as well, of the wartime era, the incarceration of the Japanese here in California. Um, really beautiful studies um, and a lot of great new literature um, on the Holocaust, uh, that, that I continue to pick up, um, that my colleagues are producing. So, um, David Schneer's book, new book, uh, the late David Schneer who died last year, uh, tragically, uh, his book grief, which is amazing. Um, the next project is uh, going to look at 45, 1945. There've been quite a few books on 45, but, um, I'm, um, my colleague and I, um, Jonathan Petropoulos, we're going to co-author it. We're going to bring kind of our strengths together in a complimentary way um, and look at these final days of the Reich and um, um, the implosion. But really with the question in this case of Himmler, I'm going to go back to Himmler. I kind of started with him <laughs> when I went to graduate school and I was uh, looking at what he was doing in Ukraine. And I was kind of avoiding him in Berlin, if you will. Um, 
but now I'm going to go back and look at the last days of, of his life. And while he was out of the bunker and what does it mean when you have someone who's the, the, the biggest kind of mass murder, one of the biggest, we know, um, certainly in history, most wanted man alive when Hitler committed suicide after he committed suicide, um, wandering around Northern Germany in, in broad daylight, um, trying to find a place to hide out, trying to make peace with the allies. And when someone of that stature is just, everything's crumbling, right? And when you have the almighty powerful kind of that descent, um, what does that look like when you have leaders, whether it's Gaddafi or Saddam or Osama bin Laden, you know, what were Himmler's last days like? Did he really register? Uh, he's walking around the same terrain that where the death marches that we're plotting, right? So what is he seeing and, and, and how is he reacting to that and um, in that period? So something like that. Um, okay, great. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Um, I wish you all the best. Stay safe um, and hope to speak with you in the future. Okay, Stanley, thank you for this opportunity. And thank you for sharing a little bit about your story and your background as well. Sure. Thank you.